the civil rights movement in America, certain catchphrases and chants have marked the movement, and none stand out to me for their memorability and their potency as the chant that became popular in the 1970s and has continued ever since. The cry, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Powerful words that convey a simple truth that until justice reigns, peace cannot. That until justice comes, peace cannot follow. That same truth, no justice, no peace, is true in the book of Zephaniah. It's a principle that helps us understand the book that a God of holiness cannot be at peace with his people until there's been justice. That a people broken by their sin, in conflict with one another and with God, cannot be at peace until there's justice. No justice, no peace. And so for the last few weeks, for two and a half chapters, we have read of God's justice and his judgment. We've read of the day of the Lord, the day when he's going to come in justice and intervene against the sin of the world. A day that's been described as a consuming fire. And all that justice has been there with a purpose. And its goal has been the peace we read about tonight. Now that there's been justice for two and a half chapters, for the last few verses of this book, we have pure peace. A peace that is only possible because justice has been served. God's justice in this book then isn't just retributive, punishing our sin, but it is restorative. This is a judgment that gives birth to a world of peace. So yes, the day of the Lord in Zephaniah is a day to be feared, but it is also a day to be hoped for, because it's going to be the day when peace comes to reign through God's justice. Justice will give birth to peace, and it is jaw-dropping. So let's read together. We're going to read the last verse of last week to see the justice. And then notice at the start of our section tonight in verse 9, we begin then. So Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world, will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. 
Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, a mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden of reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. What we have here tonight then is a picture of a world and of a Judah that has been refined, restored, and is now in this state of rejoicing. We've glimpsed it a little bit as we've seen throughout the book, this remnant, this group who would survive the day of the Lord, the group of people who would repent and find shelter in God on the day of his judgment. But what we've glimpsed in little snapshots through the book, we now get to gaze at in full HD. This picture of an incredible world, a world where God's blessing reigns, just as has been done, and now there is this peace. Without a doubt, the promise of this world of a people forgiven, of a restored creation, would have been amazing news for Judah. They have heard of their guilt, they have heard of God's coming judgment, and now this amazing news comes that it's all going to get fixed. But just as we've seen in relation to the day of the Lord's judgment, this promise points to something beyond just what Judah would see. Although the day of the Lord that was promised came, Babylon rose up, and as we've seen in recent weeks, they were destroyed. The day of the Lord did come upon them. And just as God had promised, there was a group, a remnant, that was saved through that judgment. And they did, as we read last time, come to be restored. They went back into the land, and you can read about that in a book like Nehemiah. They make it back. The promise comes true. There's a future for God's people He's brought them to this place, and in Nehemiah 12, it even brings them the great joy that this passage promises. But even at a glance, if you compare this amazing promise and what happens in Nehemiah, you might feel a little bit shortchanged. Without a doubt, this promise does point to what happens there, but without a doubt, it points to something beyond it. Just like with the day of the Lord. Was the day of the Lord about the punishment that came through Babylon? Absolutely. But we've seen that this day of the Lord pointed to a greater day of the Lord that was to come. A day when he would intervene and judge the whole world. And in the same way, this promised restoration, yes, points to a Judah that would make it through Babylon back into the land. But it points way beyond that to something way better than that. To all of God's people, saved through the day of God's ultimate judgment to a restored world that is just beyond compare. That's what this passage is ultimately pointing to. We have to see tonight that we're not just here for a history lesson on what happened with Babylon, but we are looking forward to and looking at something that points to and promises fulfillment that only comes and is only secured by the Lord's promised one, the Messiah, 
The Lord Jesus is the one who secures and wins and delivers these days to all of God's people forever. He is the one who is coming and has come and delivers these days. So in a way, Zephaniah is prophesying, looking at a mountain, and we might think it's about the first mountain, but immediately behind it, there's another pinnacle. And behind that again, there's another pinnacle, the great, great, great day of the Lord. And for us, as we come and look at it maybe a bit more side on, we can see, yes, how this has been promised and fulfilled in Babylon, but it's also been fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago, as he took the day of the Lord on himself. It's fulfilled as the good news of the gospel carries on through the church age, but it is only and ultimately fulfilled when Christ returns at the end of all days and the ultimate day of the Lord happens and this ultimate restoration happens. That's why this passage is immensely relevant and immensely important to us tonight. This isn't just information. This is stuff that has happened and is happening and will happen, and I think it should make us thrilled to bits. This is a picture of the big fix of the universe. We've seen so much brokenness in Zephaniah, so much sin, and this is the restoration of all that's broken in Zephaniah. But it is the restoration not only of that, but of all the brokenness we see in the whole of the Bible, of the brokenness that came in in Genesis chapter 3, and God's world was torn apart by sin. This is the fixing of all of those problems. And it comes because God does it, and God does it in his son. So here's what God's going to do. Here's what we're going to look at tonight. Our God is going to do three things. Number one, God will refine his people. Number two, God will restore his people. And number three, God will rejoice with his people. And we're thinking about this as something that has happened, is happening, and will happen through the Lord Jesus. We got the Lord Jesus bit. If not, this is going to make very little sense. This is something that's happened through Christ. Number one, then, this passage points to and promises a world where God will refine his people. We've seen throughout this book that they were in a mess. They were in sin, worshiping idols and wrapped up in pride. But here, it's not surprising then, because of their sin, that we read of words like removing, purifying, taking away punishment. God refining his people is absolutely necessary for the restoration and the rejoicing to happen. Remember the start, no justice, no peace. That's why this consuming anger has come in this book. God wants to consume all the wickedness and all the sin that is breaking the world. And in the fire of his judgment, not only will that be consumed, but as fire often does in the Bible, it consumes all that's bad, but refines and leaves behind all that is good. That's what's going to happen to God's own people. This remnant is still going to endure the day of the Lord. That's what this refining involves. Do you see how God refines his people? There's a few things that he does. Firstly, he removes the proud. We've seen the proud throughout this book. But to get to a glorified and perfected world, they can't be around. These people who have exalted themselves over God, who have loved their idols more than the Lord, they can't come into the new world. They can't be there because they'd wreck it. Look at what they did to the world in chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. It's horrible. So they can't come. They must be removed. So that's why in the middle of verse 11, I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. I'm going to clean it up with fire. 
Likewise, he's going to destroy those who outside of God's people have been a problem. Remember the people we met last week, the arrogant people from across the world who've abused God's people? God says he's going to deal with them likewise. You see that in verse 19? At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. Verse 15, I will turn back your enemy. So God is going to come in the consuming anger of 3 verse 8 and take away the boasters and take away those who afflicted his people. But that is not the refinement done with. He has to do something to the humble. So he doesn't just weed them out. That's part of the refinement. Remember the pictures in Matthew's gospel of Jesus sorting out all the gathered people, taking sheep and goats apart from one another. But there's still something he has to do with the sheep. There is this remnant that are kept, that are left, but they too have to be refined. They are a people who need refinement. He gathers and sorts, but there's still a refining. The process isn't finished. He's got to remove their sin too. Do you see the sin of even the humble in this passage? Look at verse 9. They have lips that need purified. Verse 11. On that day, Jerusalem, on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done. They are still guilty. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. There was a punishment that was for them. The humble, the remnant, are not virtuous in themselves. It's not that humility has made them great and that's why they're restored. But their humility is a recognition that they have nothing to commend themselves, that they are in deepest and darkest need and that that need is met in God alone. These are the people that have turned and sought the Lord as they were encouraged to in 2 verses 1 to 3. They've looked for safety from the judge of the universe in the judge of the universe. The humble are those who have put all of their eggs in the God will save me basket. They have sung, as we often sing, wash me savior or I die. And because they have sought and trusted God, they still experience his judgment. They still see this day. Their sin is still dealt with and destroyed, but in a way that leaves them pure, not demolished. God does deal with their sin. He does do away with it. Look at verse 9. He says he's going to purify the lips of the people. Notice with all of this, God's doing it. He's going to purify their lips. Lips is just a pointer to the whole person. Your lips let you know where your heart is up to. So when he says he's going to purify their lips, he means he's going to purify them because they've got dark hearts. And that idea of purifying lips is a little flashback to Isaiah. Remember the scene when Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and the Lord takes a coal from the altar of sacrifice and brings it and places it to him. He takes something from the place where sin has been paid for and applies it to his lips. That's how he purifies him. He takes sacrifice to him. The Lord says, I'm going to do that to all of the peoples. Through sacrifice, these sinners are going to get made pure. That's what the Lord's going to do on his day. Look again with me at verse 15. The Lord has taken away. That is such an active word. He's taken it away. He himself has dealt with their punishment. And as we've seen through this book, the way in which the Lord has taken away their punishment is that he has taken the day of the Lord on himself. That he has taken all of the dreadful consequences of man's sins and put them on himself in the Lord Jesus. The promise of this passage of a refined people is met in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who purifies all the humble, all the people in the world who are humble enough to see that they are guilty and that they need him 
and they see him alone as the one in whom they can take refuge. He shields his people from God's wrath by taking all their punishment on himself. Justice is done and peace is won at the cross. If you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, this is the news that you need to recognize and acknowledge that you're a sinner who needs this God to save them. And you need to recognize that Jesus is the one who does that saving, that he has taken your sin on himself, that you might be free from it forever. That's what we believe as Christians, isn't it? That all of our sin has been burned up in the jealous fire of the Lord, but it was burned up in the offering of Jesus. Just as Titus 2 says, speaking about Christ, he who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to do what? To purify for himself a people that are his very own. Christ purifies his people. We know that now, don't we? As we're declared right with God in good standing with him. As we don't know the shame of verse 11 as those who are safe in Jesus today. We see this refining as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus as we go through life. But we see this refining ultimately when Christ returns. When he plucks out the proud, when he defeats the oppressors, and when he takes our own sin and leaves it in the ground forever. He leaves our sinful bodies and our sinful natures in the grave and up come new resurrected bodies without the sinful nature. Christ refines his people on his great day of return. He deals with our wickedness when he comes back and leaves us refined. God refines his people through his son at the day of his first coming and at the day of his return. That's how this refined people exist. Justice precedes peace. We see, though, that he justifies them, that he makes them pure for a reason. Look with me again at verse 9. He says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that. So there's a purpose for refining them. They are made holy, but they are also intended to be made whole. So that's what comes next. Number one, then, God refines his people. Second point tonight, God restores his people. There's lots of overlap between these two. They're refined so that they can be restored. They're restored through refining. So if you think, oh, these two kind of mesh together, good, they do. But second point, God restores his people. This people who have been so broken, so far from his purposes, so far from what God intended as he created them, now he's going to fix them. He's going to make them as they were meant to be. He's going to turn them away from their pride and their idolatry and make them into a people who will never be like that again. So having been refined from their sin, they're restored, they're remade into a new creation just as God intended. This is how Israel was intended to be, but this is how all people were intended to be. They are restored by God then in three big ways. We want to understand restoration, what it looks like to be restored by God three big things that are involved in that. And all of these are brought about by Christ. This is what it looks like to be in the new creation because of what Jesus has done. Three things. To be restored is to be made into somebody who is for God. For God. People who now live lives that are devoted to the praise and adoration of God. Do you see that in verse 9? Here's the that. He's going to purify the lips of the people. That All of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. They're going to be worshipers who bring him offerings. So verse 9, he purifies the people so that they might have clean lips which now call upon him, which exist for him, a people truly dedicated to him, serving him shoulder to shoulder together, one unified group 
that continues the praise of God forever. This is what Israel was meant to be and failed to be. But now we see that God has made this people happen. There is going to be a restored people who fulfill the intent God had when he made the first man. Look at where they're from. This is amazing. Verse 9, he says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples. Which peoples? Scots? Jews? That all of them. Which peoples? All of them. People from everywhere are going to come to be refined and restored to be a people for God. God refines people from all over the world that they might be joined together in being for him, even from beyond the river Cush. Do you remember Cush last time? This place that was like the back end of beyond, Timbuktu, and then some? People from there, from the middle of nowhere, are going to be refined and restored and become a people for God's praise. Again, this points to what's happened in the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? He is the Savior of the world. People from all of the nations have come to be refined by Him and begin new lives for Him. This is happening today. We see it fulfilled in the book of Acts. Do you remember when an Ethiopian eunuch, somebody who's from beyond the river Cush, comes to trust in Jesus? It's happening now in the church as it spreads and tells the gospel to people from all nations. I met one of Matt's friends this week who's involved in a church plant in the middle of the Czech Republic in a town none of us have heard of, none of us could even pronounce, and none of us, I guarantee, will ever go to. It's the back end of beyond. But in the last year and a half, they've seen 10 people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is refining and restoring people to be for him from everywhere as the gospel spreads. That's what he's doing Titus 2, again, tells us that he's going to do that. He's going to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself, what? A people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, to be for him. This is what the church is, a shoulder-to-shoulder group of men and women and boys and girls, people from Asia and Africa and America and Europe and Australia, serving God. We are the scattered worshipers who exist for God's praise. And throughout the New Testament and in the rest of this passage, that group of God's people that are scattered all over the world and are from all kinds of backgrounds are called the Israel of God. They are his people. They are his delight. They fulfill his purpose to have a people who are for his very praise. We get a taster of what's coming when Christ returns as we enjoy a church that is diverse, church that's from all over the place. But we must see that the ultimate fulfillment of this, again, is at the return of Christ at the end of the age. Remember the scenes in Revelation as Christ calls people from every tribe and every tongue and every language to himself, and they join together as one new people, one new humanity that praises God, that exists for him forever and ever and ever. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. That's what we're going towards, a place so unlike the world of Zephaniah, free from idols, a people for their one God. Second thing restoration looks like. First thing then, it was about being for him. Second thing, to be restored is to be made like him. For him, second thing, like him. That's the refinement again is intermingled with this, but it's important to see that refinement isn't just that they get their sins paid for and they're made righteous. No, in this passage we see that they're radically transformed. These are going to be people who never sin again. 
Look with me again, the purified lips of verse 9. Look at what they're up to in verse 13. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. These are a group of people who have been saved from the punishment and the shame and now never do punishable or shameful things again. These are people who don't sin. Look at verse 13. They will do no wrong. This is a people radically transformed to be like God, who does no wrong, who is righteousness itself. This is God's purpose for us. Why did God make man? To be in his image, to be holy as he was holy. What was God trying to accomplish through Israel? To have a people who were holy as he was holy. And what is he accomplishing here through the Lord Jesus? He is making a people who are holy as he is holy. That's what these people are going to be like when Jesus returns. This is what we're looking forward to. Are you a person tonight who struggles with sin? Who hates the way sin is ruining our world and our lives? Who struggles to cope with its temptations in our own hearts? We're going to be in a place where we're like him forever. Made holy. This description of a pure-mouthed people happens in Revelation 14 when the people of the Lamb are described in this way. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. It's coming. This is what we're looking forward to. And this transformation, yes, fully and finally comes when the Lord Jesus returns, but it has begun in the church, hasn't it? As people who trust in Christ have been refined by him and we begin to be transformed by him. We become more and more Christ-like. That's what's happening day to day. Again, Titus 2 is super helpful. It says that this, for the grace of God that has appeared in the first coming of Jesus, that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us now to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, which literally means godlike lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very quick application point here. Right now, we can grow as Christians in the likeness of Christ. More than that, we're called to. This transformation is meant to be ongoing in us until the day when Christ returns and it is made complete in us. We're called to this and we can do this. We can grow. And as we do, not only do people see our God formed in us, but better still, as we become a more godly people, together we get to taste heaven. A godly church is an incredible place to be. Imagine if our church was a place where no one ever sneered at each other, where we were pure in our life and our love and our speech, where purity abounded. That kind of church is a great place to be. So the more and more we grow in God's likeness now, the more and more we get to taste what's going to be our eternal joy forever. Sweet joy. Let's get more godly. Let's pursue godliness in one another in our growth groups. Let's go harder at it than ever this year. Because as we do, we get to taste heaven. We get to see the restoration that the Lord is going to work in all of the world. Third thing restoration looks like. We're restored to be a people who are for God and like God. Third thing, and it is right in the middle of the passage, and it is central to all of this restoration. Look with me at verse 15 and 17. We are restored to be with God. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. This is the apex of restoration. 
for a people who've been separated by God with their sin forever, who only deserve to meet him in a chapter 3, verse 8, pouring out judgment kind of way, to find out that you're going to live with him in safety? This is stunning. For people like us who've been separated by God, this is immense hope. This refined people who are free from their sin and who are made like God are now able to be with God. We saw last time that being with God as sinners was terrifying. But being with God as a people who are made pure and made like Him, oh, it's amazing. We are made suitable housemates for the God of the universe. We move in with Him. This is immense. And this is the moment that the gospel brings. What makes this possible? Christ. Think about it in 1 Peter. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel. Why? To bring us to God. To make this moment happen. God has in Christ made for himself a people, brought them back to himself, not to fear his wrath, but to love and delight in his presence as an object of joy. To be with God in this way is pure bliss. Christians, Christ has made this possible. We know it now a little bit because the mighty warrior has come to save. We have relationship with him now. And what we have with him now gives us hope for this day when we know he is coming back. He's going to come and right all wrongs and purify us that there might be a place where me and you can dwell with him. This is why we want the king to return. We get to be with him. You're going to see Christ resurrection face to resurrection face. And it's his actions and his presence that have made all of this possible. We've done nothing in Zephaniah 3. Christ has done everything in Zephaniah 3. Look at how who he is changes everything. Who's with them in verse 15? It is a king. A king who's destroyed their enemies. So now what does that mean for them? They can live in safety and security. No more fear forever in the new creation. Who's with them in verse 17? It is a mighty warrior who in chapter 1, his battle cry went out against everything that ruins the world. Everything we hate. And so now this people, again, are safe and restored and lifted back up. These are people, look at verse 16, who are never even going to slump their shoulders in despair. When the king returns, there'll be no despairing. Look at who he is in verse 17. This is immense. So we've seen that God is with us as a king and as a warrior. But in verse 17, this is the language of him with us as a bridegroom. You heard about this this morning, that the bridegroom is coming. And this is what's happening. This is what it means to be with him in verse 17. The groom has brought his bride home, taken her out of the humility and the lowliness and the lameness and the exile of verses 19 and 20 and brought her to the most elevated place in the universe at his side. That's immense. This is what the gospel does for us. Through him, we're brought to be by his side, the object of his love, every need taken care of, every care cared for. Despite everything we've done, despite all the wrong in this book, yet in God's grace he has done this. We've said throughout this book that God has been like a lawyer with an immense case against us. Now in his grace, he has become the lover of his people who he's going to live with forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. 
So this restored and refined people are now with him, like him, for him. This has been God's design always and forever. This is what he's been jealous for in this book. If you thought his fiery, jealous anger seemed unreasonable, it's not. It's a good thing. It's because he's passionate about this moment. In love for making this happen, he would consume the universe. To have his people back with him, united to them forever, that they might be with him and for him and praise him. To do that, he has moved heaven and earth. In this book, he has poured out his wrath and his grace that this moment might happen at Christ's return. Christians, this is our hope. This picture of a restored world is what we are going to. This is what we've gained in the Lord Jesus. This is what we've tasted in what Christ has done at the cross and is doing now in the church. But this is what we've got to look for and hope for forever. And actually, this is the thing that we have to experience life now in light of. The New Testament says we're to be a people of faith, hope, and love. We talk a lot about faith and love. We don't talk a lot about hope. I wonder if in reality we've become a little bit hope light. So I wonder how big a factor this immense, gigantic hope is for you, whether its immensity and its beauty has an effect on today. Because there's telltale signs when we've started to let go of our hope. Let me tell you what it looks like when Martin lets go of his hope. When Martin is not holding on to this hope, he makes his life and his joy now everything. He makes the here and the now everything he would live for. When Martin lets go of his hope, he lives like today is the best day possible. He sees this as the moment to be enjoyed. This is the day when everything can be perfect. When Martin lets go of the hope, he becomes obsessed with his comfort and his security and his safety now. He is a ruthless hedonist. And so he tries to avoid risks and costs because he doubts that this day is coming. The joys of today tip this day out of the scales because I believe now is all there is and it's the best there is. See how letting go of my hope has ruined my life? Are you like me? Maybe the moment you lose sight of this hope is in your pessimism, when you start to think that the best is behind you, when life is just downhill. Maybe it's hard to hold on to this hope and to see this massive weighty hope when present trials and present sorrows and present costs of serving Jesus are so immense. Brothers and sisters, I know that there's people in this room who are going through experiences that are like a 10 on the Richter scale of terrible life experiences. These things are heavy to us right now. But we've got to do what 2 Corinthians 4 says and take these afflictions that are happening in our lives and put them in the scales with this weighty glory. This full and forever restoration, this vindication of us after all of our hardships, that's what makes these light and momentary afflictions bearable. That's how we get strength to carry on. We must hold the hope. This full and, full and final restoration is coming. And we must be a people who look like we know it's coming. God's refining and restoring has one more effect on his people. This is an amazing thing. We're going to look at it really quickly, and then we're going to sing about it for a good amount of time. When these people are restored fully and finally, they become a people who rejoice. We said that God refines his people, he restores his people, and the amazing thing in this book is that he rejoices with his people. Do you see that in verse 14? This is about us, Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, the new people of God. 
on, on the basis of all that we've read, on the basis of this restoration, look at what we should do. Here's an application point. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. We are the people now who rejoice and have glad hearts because we know what it feels like to have our sins forgiven. The Lord has taken away your punishment. We know the relief of that. And it's not the relief of just getting away with it. We know that justice has been done. We know that we're safe in God's arms. We know that he is our king who protects us. We're safe in the king's arms. We know that we can live without fear in this new creation because the God of all hope and comfort is with us, our shield and our defender. We know the sin and the consequence of the sin we've been spared from. Doesn't salvation look great the more you read about God's judgment? That's why there's two and a half chapters of bad news. It makes the good news look really good. The more we know about our sin and about God's judgment against us, oh, the more we find out I've got something to sing about. This is an immense thing. God has met our deepest need, and now we have deepest joy. That's why we're going to sing so much in just a moment. Amazingly, as God sees this restored people, as he brings them home, refined by his son, restored to be a people for him, like him, with him, how does God feel about it? Look with me at verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves you, look at how he feels. (laughs) He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God sings because of this restoration. Literally what's happening here is God is so overwhelmed with joy at seeing his people brought back to him that he erupts into song. How does God feel about salvation? He loves it. This is the look of a groom who's brought his bride home. I was at a wedding on Friday and boy did that groom grin. Christ will smile when he sees his people come home to him. Christian, your hope is this, that there is a day when Jesus Christ is going to delight in you. He's going to sing over you. He's going to quiet your fears and your anxieties and your worries with the sound of his love. This is the love we've been loved with. This is the love we will be loved with forever. No more rebuking, only rejoicing. I have no words for this kind of hope. God's going to sing over me. I can't wait to see what it sounds like. God is delighted at the success of his grace. He has done what he set out to do. Praise him for that. He has made people who are in his image and so can be in his presence. You remember the pictures in Luke's gospel of a woman who loses a coin and finds it and she's thrilled. Of a shepherd who's lost a sheep and finds it and he's elated. I experienced the picture this week of a preacher who'd lost his sermon notes and found them and was thrilled. God here is thrilled to have his lost ones found. Luke says at the end of those pictures, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. God is delighted to see people saved. How does God feel about the lost being found? He loves it. Shouldn't that have an impact on our feeling about seeing lost people found? Are you singing about the prospect that in August, through the work of this church, as the gospel goes out, that there might be people who come to know God forever? God's singing about it. 
If you want to please God, tell others about him. If you want to make God sing, if you want to hear this song get louder in eternity, tell others about him. Share this great love and this great grace and see people come to belong to this God forever as they come to praise him as he sings over them. This is the joy of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And it is ours to share. And it will be ours to enjoy forever. But I want to share it with the people I know. I want them to be with me on that day and hear God sing over them. Let's pray.